Welcome to Redeemer's Church Weekly Message Podcast, where our mission is simple. We are a church that is passionate about loving God and loving people. And now, we hope you enjoyed this week's message by Pastor Caleb Schaefer. We have been talking about the topic of discipleship. And so last week we started uh, with a message called Moving Beyond Belief. Moving beyond belief. What does that mean? It means that believing in Jesus is where we all begin, but it's never supposed to be where we end. It's never supposed to be where we end. You don't start a believer and just stay sold a believer for the rest of your journey with Jesus. It is supposed to ultimately transform into following Jesus. We've got to move beyond just believing. And we know Jesus' heart based upon what he did in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, we see that the invitation was not to come and believe, it was come and follow me. This invitation from Jesus had several layers of meaning. By the way, that's just an invitation to not just read the Bible all the way through one time and be like, I've read it. Every single thing in the Word of God has layers of meaning. It, every word is deep. and there's, it's, it's worthy of being mined to see the treasure in it. But when Jesus spoke, it always had layers of meaning. And that layer of meaning, when He said, come and follow is that it was an invitation to immediate obedience. Follow me in the original language meant come right now and get in line behind me. He wasn't looking for for, um, hesitation. Jesus' prompt to come and follow him required immediate obedience. It wasn't, hey, I want you to look at your schedule have a little bit of wiggle room in. It was like, I don't care what your schedule is. Right now, get behind me and follow me. The second thing, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning, that that phrase, follow me, meant what it was an invitation to be discipled by him. To be discipled by Jesus. So Jesus' call to follow him was an invitation by him, then what was that discipleship going to look like? Discipleship, there's been thousands written on discipleship. And it's one of those things that is kind of understood, but it's always important to dedicate a series like this to unfolding and reminding us all of what discipleship is really supposed to look like. Number one, you move beyond belief, okay, when you come and follow him, but also when you follow him, you step into discipleship. So what does that look like? Well, at the time that Jesus looked, there was actually two models for what discipleship looked like. Two models. The first model for discipleship was the Jewish model of discipleship. How many of you have ever heard what a rabbi is? Rabbi, okay? The Jewish model of discipleship was based upon 
the teachings of a rabbi. Now, where did this come from? Uh, Israel did not always have rabbis. Okay, there was a time where they were sovereign and they had kings. And at the time when Israel was sovereign and had kings, those kings were, uh, they were charged among kings to keep God's law, the law of Moses, in front of the people. But through a series of disobediences to God, Israel was then overtaken by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And they were removed from the country of Israel now to the Babylonian Empire where they were spread among the rest of the Babylonians. And the purpose for that was to uh, cause Israelite people to forget their culture and to forget their religion. By the way, that's another plug for why we need to be in fellowship with the believers. Because if and you don't get connected to people, guess what? You are going to be dispersed among a culture that's not reinforcing what you believe, and it's only a matter of time before what you believe gets diluted. So this is what the tactic, it was the strategy of the Babylonians. To counter that tactic, establish the role of the rabbi. The rabbi was responsible equipping a common Jewish man with and, and teaching him the law of Moses. Okay? I'm going I'm to take it a step further here. Why the man? Because as in a family goes, so goes the family. That's not today in a world where we're constantly trying to grapple with what the role of a husband and a wife was. But there was something in God that when he created Adam, it was Adam's responsibility to live really well. You know what that means? That means that in a church, a church is healthy when the men are in their role. When the men are taking their God-given role to spiritually lead, a church is healthy. And so it was the rabbis teaching the men the law of Moses so that it could trickle down to the family unit. Now, the men would not choose, they would choose the rabbis. The rabbis would not choose them. It was a series of rabbis. And if you've ever watched The Chosen, you see, these, you see this. These Pharisees that would literally go into the public squares, stand on a platform, and start preaching because they actually had to gain the influence. Jesus actually did it the other way around. And he said, you follow. The rabbis were looking for followers to come to them. Jesus went to them and said, no, you follow me. And so he did it. He flipped it upside down. But the rabbi's whole goal was to preserve the culture and religion of Israel as they were in exile. That was the method of discipleship. There was another. He say, I'm with you. Suit real quiet in here. The second method of discipleship was the Greek method. This was called the paideia. Paideia was this, that Greeks believed they could cultivate and create an ideal society. And what the paideia was, it was the set of virtues that every single Greek citizen to live by in order for that ideal society 
So it wasn't just the men now. It was the whole family that would be discipled by the Paideia. They called it the Greek. Now, what's fascinating is that they were successful because there was a period of time in the history of the world where Hellenization existed. You know what Hellenization was? Hellenization was the reality that Greek culture had infiltrated pretty much the whole known world. And so the Paideia was highly successful. These were the two different methods of discipleship that existed at that time. Now, why is this important? Because when Jesus called the disciples to follow him, they knew what that invitation was. They knew it was an invitation into discipleship. But Jesus' method of discipleship was a little different. It was a combination of both the Jewish method and the Greek method. Jesus' method of discipleship was to not only teach them who God was, but it was also to teach them a new way of life. A new paideia. A new way of life. This is so important. And this is... This is where discipleship in America is not exactly the discipleship that Jesus intended. One of the problems with the Greek mind is they believed in duality. What does that mean? They they separated physical from spirit. Matter of fact, it was detestable to the Greek mind to claim that God who is spirit entered into physical flesh and became a man because they thought physical flesh was dirty why would God do that which is why Paul had an uphill battle with the Gentiles but he was extremely successful and so what the Greeks would do is they would compartmentalize things they would say I'll just be candid in Corinthians Paul talks about this sexual acts He was talking to a church and he said, avoid sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you? Why did he say that? Because he's talking to Greeks that say, look, this is not sin. This is just me meeting a sexual need. This has nothing to do with the health of my spirit. They're separate. No, they're not. Paul said they're directly intertwined. You can't do that, because what you do in the flesh affects the spirit as well, and vice versa. Are you with me? Okay? So when Jesus says, this is a, this is a new way of life, I'm coming to disciple, disciple you in a new way of life, it was a holistic approach. The reason why discipleship is in error in ways in America is because we are cutting off the discipleship to only certain sectors of our, of our life. That is the influence of the Greek mind in our culture. And as a result, we are undercutting the effectiveness of the gospel because we do not believe that discipleship is supposed to touch every fabric of our life. So when Jesus came, he said, no, 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 no. 
I will do what the Jews do and I will do what the Greeks do in my discipleship. This is a holistic effect. It's supposed to touch every single part of who you are. You, when you come and follow me, you are going to be discipled in how to be a husband, how to be a father, how to be a wife, how to be a mother, how to be a son, how to be a daughter. You will be discipled in how you handle your money, how you treat people, how everything will be touched by my discipleship. Here's why it mattered. Because a new birth has to have a new way of life. You don't get reborn and then go back to an old way. A new birth required a new way of life. Every area of a follower of Jesus' life would come under his discipleship. One of the scriptures that often gets overlooked about this is John chapter 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Once again, another scripture, another time where Jesus is speaking that had layers of meaning. Okay, three meanings of I am the way. Number one, I am the way to eternal life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am, Jesus said this, I think, in John 10. I am the gate. You come through me to come to the Father. Okay, the second thing was this. I am the way to learn who God is. Jesus said in another place, I came to reveal the Father. Okay, so I'm not just the way. I am not just salvation, but I'm also the way for you to learn who God is. Now, that was specifically important for the Jews because the Jews believed that the Torah contained all of what you would need to know about who God is. You know what Jesus was saying in that, which was quite radical, I can actually show you more who God is than the Torah can. I came to reveal the Father. And then the third is this, I am the capital letters, the way of life. I am the way of life. When Jesus said this to his disciples, it was understood as him saying, I will model for you how you are supposed to live your life. I'm not just your way to God. I will model for you how you are to live out your life. I'm the way of life. Now what's interesting is that in the early church, one of the names that the Christian community got was followers of the way. Isn't that interesting? And that was not them claiming that. That was other people saying they're following a different way of life. Followers of the way. That's in Acts 9 and Acts 22. Jesus speaks of modeling this way of life to his disciples in Matthew chapter 11. Okay, it says this in 28 and 29, and this is so familiarly focused on just coming to Jesus for rest, but I want you to see the invitation. Come to me. What's that? That's an invitation to follow. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He was talking to them about the weight that the pharisaical law and traditions put on people. That was what was weighing them down. But if you want to be discipled not by that rabbi, but by a different rabbi, come to me, accept the invitation to follow me. Now watch this. Take my yoke upon you, and what? Do you know what take my yoke upon you was? It was literally a metaphor for discipleship. 
That, you look up the word. Take my yoke is this. Come under my wing. That's the modern vernacular. Come under my wing and follow me. You're at that person that you mentor. This is the invitation. I love what the message translation is. It says this. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. That's such a beautiful picture of the modeling that Jesus was, was doing in his discipleship with these young men. Watch me, work with me, or uh, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. He was saying, I have a way of life that you need to learn. It's different than what you've ever ex experienced. Now, what do you do with it? Paul captures the essence. Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So how does disciple, how do you know, how do you know if you're following Jesus well? How well are you imitating him? Jesus was not saying, come and learn everything about me. It was, come and follow me to copy what you see and hear, to mimic it. That's what imitate means, mimic. You ever seen a mime? One of the most annoying talents ever. Come and mimic, come and mimic what you see. Okay? Imitate, copy, emulate, duplicate what I do in your life. So once again, Jesus' invitation to follow him wasn't just to show them the way to God, but also to model for them the way to live their life. So then what would Jesus have taught them and modeled for them that they would later imitate. Simply put, this is the first one for this week. Jesus showed them in his words and actions how to be a servant. How to be a servant. Now, this is where everybody's like, okay, I might have to leave. I thought, I thought the message was going to be a little bit more sensational this morning. Oh, so you're going to spend the rest of the time about serving? Yeah, because that's what you would have seen from Jesus. Look at what he says about himself, Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, even to give his life as a ransom for many. What's Jesus saying here? <laughs> he was saying, if I'm here to serve, guess what you're here for? Now, here's the amazing thing about it all, is that Jesus was the premier rabbi. He was gaining popularity among the masses. And these disciples who were following him were starting to think, hey, we're, getting some, we're catching some downwind popularity here. Everybody, now, the, the masses want, they want to be close. They want to be among that 12, that group of 12, that's Jesus' homies, Jesus' bros. I want to be in that group. And they're starting to feel themselves until they hear scriptures like this. I didn't come to be popular. I came to serve. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. As a matter of fact, even if it costs me my life, that's what I will spend my ministry doing 
in my time on earth is serving. Now, Jesus not only taught them this, but he also tested it. See this in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him. This is so important. The disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send... Eight. Late. Typo. Maybe I was hungry when I put that in there. Um, so watch this. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Send the crowds away. Um, that send the crowds away has a very interesting meaning in the original language. It was the word you would use to divorce somebody. Now, in the New Testament, the Jewish man could send the woman away. That's what divorce was. Now, what, what did that mean? She's no longer my responsibility. That's what the disciples were saying. Hey, it's getting late. They're, I'm hungry. I mean, they're hungry. Send them away because they're not our responsibility anymore. Okay? Well, let's offload. I want you to see this picture. Let's offload the responsibility. That's not on me anymore. Okay? We fed them spiritually. Jesus, certainly, you would not expect us to feed them too. Watch what Jesus says. Um, you give them something to eat. Oh, you thought your season of service was over? You give them something to eat. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, if you're going to follow me, my people are your responsibility. If you don't want to serve them, go ahead and don't follow me. But if you are with me, listen, you can't act like the need that you can meet doesn't exist. You give them something to eat. That's huge. Go ahead and high five me. She said, say that again. <laughs> Jesus said this. He said, if you're going to follow me, you can't act like the need that you can meet doesn't exist. It's your responsibility if you're with me. Because my people are your responsibility. You give them something to eat. Now, the irony of it all is that this was the second time Jesus had to tell them that. <laughs> oh, this is such a great message. I'm loving it right now. Because we all think that if we serve for a season, our time of serving is over. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, a couple chapters ago, I already fed them. And guess what? The needs, Beth, never end. Been there, done that. 
didn't get the trophy yet. This is another group of people where the need's still there. You give this new group a, some food to eat. Some of the reason why we have such an issue with serving in America is because we're conditioned to be spectators. You know what spectators are? <laughs> spectators are people show up to watch everybody else do the work. Some of y'all tonight at 5 p.m. going to be spectating for about four hours. You are showing up at no cost to you to watch everybody else do the work. Spectating is a part of our culture. We, we, we go to fast food restaurants to spectate. We go to restaurants to spectate. We, we go and we pay a price to watch other people sweat. It's a spectator culture. And that infiltrates the church. Because we like to just show up and do what we do everywhere else. We like to show up and just watch everybody else do the work. Thank God I'm not, a, not that chicken running around with their head cut off. Why is it that in the body of Christ, you got to plead with people to, to, to acknowledge that a need exists and then see if they're willing to help? I'm sorry, that's the spectator culture. But if you follow Jesus, guess who does the work? Oh, man. God, thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to this later and get convicted. We can't just show up. That's the spectator culture. We have to be willing to put... What did Jesus say? He said, if somebody put... Like, we have to be willing to say, yeah, that's on me. My people, his people are my responsibility. Can I get an amen? Let me show you. Now, this is what's fascinating. What Jesus did, someone who was present on the receiving end of Jesus saying, you get some, you do something that they need to eat, that ended up now his own version of this very thing. Do you remember in the story, they said, all we have, it came out of the prayer room this morning, all we have is just a couple of loaves of fish, or bread, and fish. Bring that to me. Because all I need is whatever you possess. Are you hearing what I'm saying? All I need is what you already have. Because if you will bring to me what you already have that you don't think qualifies you to do something and you put it in my hands something in my hands that it never could be if you continue to hold on to it. Just bring it to me. Bring whatever you have because the responsibility exists whether or not you acknowledge what you think you can contribute. Peter later and I have to believe it has everything to do with what he saw when in these moments, 1 Peter 4.10 says this, each of you, say each of you, should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. A faithful steward of God's grace in its various forms. The enemy would love for you to sit on your butt and do nothing with what's already in you. I know, I can't do that. How do you know? 
How do you know you can't do it? As long as you sit there, you'll believe that. But you have a gift given to you that you've received. Go and use it to serve others. You know what that gift is? It is five loaves and two fish. Bring that to me. I love what my wife said, and she always, look, there's so many things that in sermons I say that I, she's like, you never give me credit. <laughs> so I'm, I'm about to, <laughs> Aaron said, that's my pastor, out of here. I love what she said. She said, stop treating serving like you need a spiritual gift to do it. Like it's all, I don't have the gift of prophecy. Look, you don't need it in the nursery. All you need is smile at the front door. You don't need a gift of faith. Let me just say this. You don't need to pray about Did you, we see the reaction from the disciples coming to Jesus? Hey, let's send them away. And he said, you give them something to eat. Let me pray about it real quick. Lord, if this is what you want me to do right now, keep on praying about it. The need's still there. And this is what I love. We will pray until we hear God say no. Is that God? Because the need was there. My people are your responsibility. If you are going to follow Jesus, you are signing up to serve. Serve with whatever you have. So Jesus talked about it. He expected it. He also modeled it. In John chapter 13, verses 3 through 16, Jesus is at dinner with his disciples. And he begins to wash their feet. And I want you to nurse what he says to them. In verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took his outer clothing off, and wrapped it around his waist. He was literally, Philippians 3, taking the of a servant. Because that's how servants were dressed when their masters come into a room and that one of the first things they would do was wash their feet. Let me just describe what that looked like. Okay? They weren't wearing Nikes or Jordans. They were wearing open-toed Birkenstocks. And let me just give you a little bit of the idea of what people would walk through on the road. Some dung. Okay? People didn't take their livestock off the road. Go ahead and just go over here and just do your business. It was right there. So you know what people were walking through? Take a guess. And it was the servants who had to clean their feet. And Jesus models servanthood. He gets dressed for it. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel. And Simon Peter stands up and says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Why? Because he knows it's a trifling job. No, Lord. No, 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 no. I got my own feet. You don't deserve this because 
I know what I walked through to get here. Love, love what Jesus said. He says, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then Lord, Simon Peter said, wash my feet, my hands, my hair. I don't, wash it all, Jesus. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right in saying that, for that's who I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Now watch this. This is the modeling. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for others. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. What do servants do? Servants lower themselves and get their hands dirty in the dirty work. Working with people is a dirty job. It's getting your hands dirty but no servant is above his master. Jesus said, you're seeing me do what servants do to you. Do that to one another and model that later in how you follow me and imitate me. If you choose to accept the invitation to follow Jesus, you are signing up to serve. What would have the disciples heard Jesus teach and model as they followed him? They would have learned to serve, and we'll get into the other elements for the rest of the month. And listen to this as we close. That serving is what actually makes you great in the kingdom. Check this clip out. Greatness, it's just something we made up. Somehow we've come to believe that greatness is a gift reserved for a chosen few, for prodigies, for superstars. And the rest of us can only stand by watching. You can forget that. Greatness is not some rare DNA strand. It's not some precious thing. Greatness is no more unique to us than breathing. We're all capable of it. All of us. By the way, that's what I would look like if I was running today. Did you catch what that said? Because this is what we think about serving. It said greatness is not ju it's just something we made up. We have come to believe that greatness is a gift reserved for a chosen few, for prodigies and superstars. And the rest of us can only stand by and watch. 
But he said, greatness is not some rare DNA strand. It's not some precious thing. Greatness is no more unique to us than breathing. We're all capable of it. All of us find your greatness. Fascinating because in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, the disciples, and this is where we close, they were wanting to know who was going to be the greatest among them. So they're, they're talking among themselves, and Jesus is listening. And he hears what they're saying. He says, um, what were y'all talking about? And they were like, oh, man. Jesus sits them down, and he says, oh, you want to know what greatness is about? He called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be great, he shall be last and Servant of all. Listen, everybody aspires to do great things for God. But do you know where that starts? It starts in serving Jesus by meeting the needs you already know. We treat promotion and being Instagram famous. Somehow we'll just be viral and buy all of the steps of maturity that lead to greatness. Sign up where you already know the needs exist. You know what servants are? Servants are unsung heroes. And when I was thinking about a servant, things that came to mind is that servants, they do what they do until the job gets done. And there was a servant, actually two of them, that came to mind when I was thinking about this. We had a prophetic word years ago that said that God would highlight our church freeway based upon the location. And people would be here because God would put his finger point here. And to partner with that, one of the things that we decided to do was buy those flags that you see out there. Let me get attention. Draw. Matter of fact, I want to put them on both sides of the... How many of you, if this was your first time, you're like, where is this church at? You're all like, following Google, like, dang, that, 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 that destination is wrong. You can, you, can, you can miss that entry over and over and over again. But I think about this, and someone who's a servant, actually just took it over. And that's Todd Hedrick. And Mark Miller. Mark, will you stand? Where's Todd at? I don't know, but Todd, find Todd. Mark, Mark, stand. Mark, I'm so grateful. You know why? Because it's something I could have done, but I didn't have to do. Because I knew that if you did it, it would be done well. And they came on Saturday, and they dug the hole and they laid the piping. And, and here's the thing I love about Mark. Mark has come to me almost every week for the last It's like, you know, if we do this, it'll be a little bit better because, you know, we, you know where our church is. I mean, they might get stolen. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying. And he figured out a mechanism to lock them in place so that that could never happen. And, you know, it's 
it's, it's going above and beyond until the work is done. And then he's like, I'm going to build the room so if we ever take them down, we can put them in there. And I'm like, this is what it means to be a servant. You just take the initiative. Todd helped at the initial side of the project. Thank you, Todd. But listen, do you, you can go ahead and be seated, but I want you to listen to this. The commercial said, it's not some rare DNA strand. We're all capable of it. Find your greatness. Use whatever you have to serve. So what does it look like in the church to find your greatness? Find a place to that simple. Will you stand with me? Find a place to serve. Let me, let me just tell you something, okay? And I know that Pastor Rick can attest to this. So I am a, uh, I have, I take a for you, if you don't know this, I take a salary from the church, so I'm a full-time salaried person. I'm very grateful for that. Grateful that we have such an amazing giving church that allows this. But a couple of months ago, I came to the elders, and I just wrote out the different things that I did in the church. And I categorized them. I said, this is what I do as a pastor, and this is what I do in this position. This is what I do uh, for this reason. But then I had a category that was, this is what I do as an elder. And let me explain what, that, what I meant by that. This is what I would do even if I wasn't get, getting paid, because this is where I get to serve. I'm receiving an income for certain things, but regardless of whether or not I received a salary, you best believe that I would be serving in this capacity. Because I'm not putting everything I do under the umbrella of I'm only doing it to get paid. You know why that matters? If somebody leaves. Then you create a massive vacuum where all of the stuff you did for a paycheck. I refuse to do that. Because these are areas where I'm choosing to take my pastor salary hat off and I'm going to be a servant called by God to serve for a salary. I'm called to serve if I choose to follow. Find your greatness. Find your place to serve. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. We hope you were challenged, encouraged, and inspired as you listened to this teaching from God's Word. For more messages or information about our church, please go to www.redeemers.life.